Hoopsology podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best, as you know, in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped recently launched the Ultimate Men's Hygiene Bundle, the Performance Package. Join over 7 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code Hoopsology at Manscaped.com. The Performance Package 4.0 by Manscaped has arrived and all man is a game changer. A huge shout out goes to Manscaped for hooking Matt and I up with the Performance Package. Inside this package, you'll find a lot of useful items. You'll find their lawnmower 4.0 trimmer that you've probably heard of before. You'll also find their new weed whacker ear and nose hair trimmer. You'll find crop preserver ball deodorant, crop reviver toner. Don't sleep on those products, gentlemen. Performance boxer briefs and a travel bag. And for my bearded brethren, and I know there are a lot of you out there, be sure to check out the new Beard Hedger, which is a tool that makes managing your beard so much easier. 20 different instantly adjustable length options, no more messing with multiple clips with your trimmer. It's a really slick and ingenious product. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code Hoopsology. That's H-O-O-P-S-O-L-O-G-Y at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code Hoopsology. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. We thank Manscaped for supporting the show. In this edition of Hoopsology, Justin welcomes back the owner and operator of InStreetClothes.com and the co-host of the InStreetClothes podcast, Jeff Stotts. Stotts provides some in-depth analysis about how athletic trainers are critical to the well-being of the NBA athletes. Jeff also provides his take on if Zion Williamson is destined to be injury-prone, and also we get his analysis on the evolution of health of the athletes within the NBA. Please email your questions to hoopsologypod at gmail.com. Follow us on all your favorite social media platforms and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We are a proud member of Underdog Podcast. And now, Jeff Stotts. He is a certified athletic trainer, the owner and operator of InStreetClothes.com, and the co-host of the InStreetClothes podcast. We welcome back Jeff Stotts onto Hoopsology. How's it going, Jeff? I'm doing well. Appreciate you guys having me on, uh, like always. And I appreciate you coming back. We always like this to pick your brain just about um, injuries and just about the trends you see within the league. Because I think you have a fascinating take and you're very astute to what's going on. So I was um, going through your tweets and I noticed something very interesting with the Sacramento Kings in particular. That's a team that we've been focused on as of late. They've been really shocking the league. And um, you said that they really had... Uh, you really wanted to compliment the hard work of their medical team. And I just wanted to see if you noticed anything that they're doing from a medical perspective compared to the rest of the teams in the NBA that you notice in terms of just um, keeping their team healthy just because of their success this season. Well, Sacramento has always had kind of a proactive staff. It, it, it goes back several, several years, almost decades at this point, to Pete Youngman, uh, who Pete is now with the NBA G League or the G League Ignite. So uh, Pete was there for a long, long time, you know, through all the, the uh, Western Conference <laughs> unfortunate follies they had against the Lakers and, and dated even further back than that. And they laid the groundwork for what it was to be a proactive staff. Uh, a lot of their guys have gone on to do other jobs, uh, other places, 
Ramsey, who was their strength and conditioning coach, um, is now uh, with Kansas University um, as work running their their sports medicine program in terms of sports performance. Uh, they've got guy teams everywhere. Kind of the, the tree has been spread out pretty well from from Pete, and then they kind of kept that going even when Pete was was no longer with with the organization directly. Um, the people that they brought in, which is a pretty diverse staff, has been proactive and kind of picked up what Pete had had kind of set there, and so. You know, part of it is a little bit of luck. I think they'd tell you that too, you know. Um, but, you know, even when they've had guys that have in, gotten injured, uh, those players have been able to play through those injuries. For example, uh, Sabonis is playing through that thumb fracture from earlier in the year. So even though an injury has occurred, it's not costing them games. And for all intents and purposes, hasn't really affected Sabonis' performance either. So um, they've been pretty pretty fortunate. But I, I think it's, it's Joel Noland and his staff um, are just – great at what they do. And like I said, proactive and they, you know, they have a younger team as well, which is always beneficial in terms of youth. Youth is for, for health purposes always is, is nice. So um, it is athletic training month for the March. So, so hat tip to, to Joel and, and his crew, as well as all the other athletic trainers around the, around the league. Cause it's, it's a hard job, but uh, it's, and you know, it's come under a lot of scrutiny these last couple of years with things like load management, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit, but um, mm-hmm. they, they do a great job. And so, you know, they've, they're, they're at the top of the league right now in terms of games lost for the season. Can you predict a team's performance based on their medical staff? Like in the beginning of the season, can you, can you assess like, Hey, this team has a really solid medical staff. They might, you know, not run into just the injury bugs or that that doesn't matter. Like, is there a, is that a key in terms of teams winning games in terms of their veteran in terms of the experience of a medical staff on a team? I mean, it definitely helps, right? Like I can't sit here and say it's going to drastically impact things. What you're trying to do when it comes to any of this stuff is mitigate risk, right? And the more, effective your medical team is the more likely they are to mitigate the risk of something happening. And so I I think that's really kind of what we look at. You know, that was the question I kind of asked myself when I started building the database, because all I had heard was how great the the Phoenix Suns medical staff was and oh they were so proactive and they were, they were doing all these different things. And, you know, you heard veterans that wanted to go play in Phoenix because they were revitalizing careers and things like that. And so I was able to evaluate and look at numbers. And so, and, truth the truth is phoenix was constantly ranked at the top but you know the unfortunate thing is just because you're not missing that many games to injuries doesn't always equate to success i mean sacramento is the perfect example right like even though they were routinely one of the top five in in terms of healthiest we're still talking about a 16 year drought now right for the playoffs which (laughs) looks like it's going to come to an end this year happy for the kings fans but you know it's it's you can predict the possibility and and maybe say these are the riskier staffs, but there's also been a ton of turnover um, in recent seasons and recent years. So, you know, when I first got into athletic training and had my eye on the NBA, having conversations with different people was like, well, you got to get one of those jobs and just kind of wait it out because those people don't leave. And you've seen a lot more turnover in recent seasons in terms of just number one staffs are expanding, but also people are switching teams or, you know, that's one of the first things that unfortunately gets the ax when, you know, new ownership comes in or new general managers because they're trying to put their impact and their stamp on things. So, you know, if, if it is not someone they're connected to, they might, you know, decide to go an alternative route. Cause that's scapegoats kind of a, a strong word to say, but it's a lot easier than, than, <laughs> than letting go the players or even the coach in some situations. So I want to transition to something Paul George said recently. Um, he said that players are too rested 
um, for just the intensity of NBA games. Is that actually the case? And is that actually too much rest like a negative in terms of just the, you know, going through the grind of the NBA season? Is it consi- is it best for just a player to just be playing consistently or is rest an, a great strategy? Is there, or just, this depends on the player. Well, it, it really is that you're finding, trying to find a happy balance. You know, I, I don't think anybody would sit here and say rest is <clears throat> inherently a bad thing, right? Um, allowing the body to recuperate. And the league has actually done a lot of things to kind of inherently build in rest. You know, we've seen a drastic reduction in back-to-back games. We have a lot of these now, you know, uh, baseball series uh, events where the team goes and they play play each other back-to-back. Uh, the, the schedule is drastically friendlier than it was in years past. Um, there's the full week off for the all-star break. You know, these things are <clears throat> inherent ways to load manage the NBA, right? Rest these players. I think what George is potentially alluding to is the fact that sometimes when you have a big spike in your workload is what we, that can lead, lend itself to potentially a high risk s- a situation where a soft tissue structure could be, could be at risk of, of, you know, a strain or a sprain. So if you have, you, what we're trying to do is again, like I said, find that balance. And, and a lot of teams will use the acute to chronic workload ratio where they're evaluating a player's workload over like a three week to, to three months span. And then a little bit shorter, more acute, which is, can be again, th- three days to three weeks, depending on again, what kind of window they're looking at, what they're evaluating. And you just don't want those big spikes either way. You don't want to suddenly throw someone into something. And you also don't want to have lulls where then even just a normal return to play would say is technically a big spike. So uh, I kind of get what Paul George is saying, because if, you know, you are playing at a high intensity and then you're shut down for a little while and you're playing and I, that can be tough on the body too. So it's finding that balance, finding the, the, the natural balance where you're recuperating, but also not accumulating any, for lack of better terms, rust. So do you find that template that the NBA is doing now with following Major League Baseball where they kind of do the, you know, home and homes, is that a viable solution you think in terms of kind of solving kind of the low management issue? Is that a step in the right direction or is there other steps the league can take in solving this issue that makes everybody happy? I know that's a monumental task for me to try (laughs) to please multiple masters, but I think that is a constant issue that fans bring up. Yeah, I I think – I like the idea of the baseball series in a lot of ways because you can set up shop in terms of hotel. You're not flying, you're not coming in, that kind of thing. Um, It does, you know, potentially if you know you want to rest a guy, you're not leaving those fans in the lurch. There's still the chance that they're going to see them the next night. So you get two kind of cracks at it to see a guy like a Steph Curry. Um, That doesn't always work for a team where you only played them twice. Right. So it's, you know, opposite conferences isn't going to work. Um, But it's at least a way to potentially navigate some of that, give some of the power to the, the players and the fans. The, the, the obvious solution is to cut down the number of games. And I know that's not necessarily something anybody wants to do for historical purposes. And I know there's some feedback, obviously money talks and 10 less games and things like that. But I, I think a 72 game schedule, if you look at it in a way it could spread the schedule out a little bit would be a little bit more friendly for everybody involved, you know, in, you know, I know people say, Oh, well that's, you know, less games, but, if it increases the likelihood that, you know, your, your, your LeBron's, your Steph Curry's, your Giannis's, your Luca's are going to be playing when you go see them, especially if that's the only time they could travel to your city. Um, 
that makes a little bit more sense to me. So um, it'll be interesting to see what steps they make. Cause I know this is on the forefront of everybody's conversation of what are we going to do moving forward? How's this going to look? What are we going to do? How can we help? Because at the end of the day, we want the, the players healthy, you know, and load management and rest is not anything new. It's just become so frequently used and in a way that is, unfortunate for, 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 again, for the fans, the fans suffer. And then again, now you're starting to get a little bit kickback and it's uh, from the players themselves. So I, I think it'll be a talking point in the next um, discussions or around the CBA discussions that they have. I think the players and the fans would be on board with that. I think from a fan perspective, I've heard to start the season at Christmas. And I think with the players, it's certainly a less season, less wear and tear on their bodies. I think, you know, it comes down to the league and the television contracts in terms of, you know, <laughs> they're going to lose money from that in terms of the, the, the value of that kind of uh, bidding war that's, that's about that's happening now for the next TV deal. So I, I think it's a viable solution. Hopefully we see that come to fruition soon. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and 10 games is really not that much in the grand. No, it's not. Yeah, totally agree. Um, I want to transition and just get your feedback on what you're seeing in trends in the league so far in terms of injuries. Um, I think last time we spoke, you, you said you didn't really see any of the irregularities. Um, are you seeing now we're pretty much in, you know, I would say, correct me if I'm wrong, I haven't seen too many um, players sit out because of um, COVID. So I, it seems like that's been mitigated compared to the, just a couple of years ago. Um, are you seeing any trends in terms of a spike injuries down that's consistent um, just since things are basically back to normal from like a basketball standpoint, you think? We're definitely seeing a major increase in games lost to COVID and, il and illnesses in general, wow. which is wow. going to drastically help the, the final numbers. We know last year set a, a record high for total games lost to injury or illness um, and largely to that Omicron variant that hit and ravaged yeah. the league from about mid-December through January. You know, we had, we had to have, we had to have expanded rosters to just make up for that. Cause you had guys that were coming in <laughs> testing positive <laughs> and things like that. So uh, that's been the big, the big turnaround. Um, so I, I think as we're recording this, I think we're at the 87% mark of games played. We're on pace for over 5,000 games lost. Last season, it was 7,000 games. So a pretty big dip down. Now, 5,000, over anything over 5,000, for the most part, has historically been pretty high. That being said, those numbers have been, that's kind of where we've been over the last five to six seasons. We kind of have to throw out that, the lockout, or not the lockout, the, the bubble season because of the hiatus. But the years leading up to that, before that, there'd only been one one season where they've been over 5,000 since 05, 06. So now there's been consistently, we're, we're probably looking at that's going to be the bare minimum uh, based on, on kind of the way we handle injuries at this point. I would love to see that number decline. Uh, as far as like trends, the one injury that I'm starting to see a little pop back up a little bit more, which I'm not surprised. I thought it might happen a little earlier is we're starting to see some stress related injuries wow. prop back up. Hmm. Um, and I think that's as we get used to the ramifications of that lockout shortened season or the, the bubble season, excuse me, followed by the compressed season, followed by the, the, the next season, which still was abnormal. We had the Olympics in the summer and, you know, the truncated off season and things like that. So, uh, you guys like Kate Cunningham, uh, you know, missed almost the entire season due to stress related injury. That's what limited Anthony Davis and is still limiting him. Uh, you know, and those kinds of injuries, I was expecting them to be more of an issue last year, but maybe now we're starting to see some of the, the long-term effects of, of that uh, alteration of the, the normal beats of a normal, normal season. So uh, that's kind of what I'm keeping my eye on. Ankle sprains, things like that seem to be kind of basically where they always are, but 
you know, uh, the stress injuries are one I'll be tracking for the rest of the season as well as as into next year. And, and the good news is, is you know, knock on wood, some of the bigger injuries we just haven't seen as many uh, that we we did see a big spike in Achilles tendon tears a couple of years back. Um, hopefully, we've seen kind of those numbers go down a little bit too. But you know, that doesn't mean they won't happen. And you know, mm-hmm. uh, just hopefully, it's <laughs> keep our fingers crossed. It's nobody, no, you know, nobody suffers the injury, and definitely nobody um, noteworthy in terms of a guy like Durant when he did his. So what do you see as a solid preventive measure for the league? If, you know, we never, I, I never thought we would see like a pandemic like we did in 2020. If it happens again from a kind of sports standpoint, what can players do to mitigate the risk of injury if, if it does happen again? I mean, I, I, could, I can't sit here and say it would never happen again. I mean, just because of what happened in 2020. So, I mean, it has, do you think players have learned from that period of time where if something like that does happen again, they can mitigate the risk for injury um, in a preparation for that? Yeah, I definitely think you're going to start. I mean, part of it is just just experience, right? We've all been through it. If it were happen tomorrow, I think we'd all kind of be in a completely different situation than we were than the, than the initial wave because you know we didn't know what was going on. Sure. You know, uh, I think we've all kind of learned how to adapt a little bit. We know how to work from home a little bit more. I think the players now there are a lot more tools that are available in terms of you know at home gyms and at home policies and at home things that you could do that teams had to figure out the first time from fresh. Well, now we wouldn't be starting from scratch. We'd be able to handle and mitigate things a little bit better. That being said, it's still problematic in terms of getting to a gym. You know, not all players have courts in their house, you know, finding the access space, those kinds of things. But I I do think between the, the hiatus, the bubble, and then the following year where there were so many strict protocols in place, if like, if something were to happen again, we'd at least be in a better starting point than we were previously. And I want to ask this about comparing this era of athlete as well. It seems like this era of athlete, I have heard from this older NBA veterans that they don't have to take care of their bodies, you know, compared to just the nineties, eighties, et cetera. What are you seeing in terms of what are they doing? Like you mentioned the home gyms, like there's any other trends that you're seeing in terms of maybe medical staff, like the evolution from maybe like the nineties to now, um, is that just due to just the increase of competition in terms of the, the athleticism of this, the, the athletes that are taking place or we'll talk about that, this evolution, you think? Yeah. So I think you can, have, you know, I can both agree the game itself has evolved, right? If you go look at just the numbers alone this year in terms of scoring, um, I mean, how many 60, 70 point games have we had? Uh, yeah. The, the, the use of the three point shot, the pace of the game is all drastically different than in the early two thousands and into the nineties. Um, and that's because our athletes have also evolved. We can't sit there and say, well, just the game has evolved. The athlete has also evolved. You know, if you put a, a guy that looked like Steph Curry and told anybody in 2000 or the nineties, he would be the face of the, you know, the league just about, they might've laughed at you because his, his skill set, his size, that was not conducive to product being productive. And then you also, on the other end of that, you throw in a guy like Porzingis or women Yama in this upcoming draft, you know, these bigger guys, Dirk Nowitzki, even, you know, he was, he was the unicorn back then. So um, the game has evolved, <clears throat> but the demands have changed as well. Right. You didn't see Shaq have to guard the three point, three point line. Yeah. He would have to do that in today's game, which would require more starts and stops on his frame, stretching the court, expanding the court where he would have more ground to cover. You know, it would not be quite as plotting. Um, Embiid, even a guy who is cl- probably the closest thing we had to Shaq in the game right now, 
will stretch his game out and shoot the three. So, you know, that changes how the body is loaded in these games. And so I, I think the game has evolved. I, I think the game and the athlete has evolved. Now, again, the the smarter we get, we have more tools at our disposal. You don't have players smoking as much, you know. I mean, I, I think they're probably. I think we'd be naive to say not all, no one in the NBA smokes, but I, I don't think you would see it as a, as regular as it is or it was. Excuse me. Um, teams now hire dietitians. You know, they meals are catered pre-practice, post-practice on the plane, as opposed to a guy being sent on his own, especially a young guy who all he knows is, you know, go through the drive-through, grab some fast food. Um, so there's more tools at their disposal. Um, but I also think we're kind of oversaturated the market a little bit too. We're trying to figure out what's noise and what is, what is applicable and what's, it's a, it's a lot. It's like trying to drink out of a, uh, out of a fire hydrant. You can probably do it if you hold a cup up there and <laughs> sip, but if you're trying to just take it all in, it's just too much. So trying to read through the noise, find what recovery tools, what modalities, what techniques are useful, what aren't, how can we improve? How's it going to work for a guard versus a center? It's a, it's an evolving process. And so, you know, I think you're seeing players invest more in their bodies. Um, I, I think you're also seeing play, players potentially play more, which is, can potentially be part of the problem. Um, you know, you don't have guys just the season ends and they, they, they don't go play. They're in the gym consistently, which can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing. Uh, I think previously you and I talked about, you know, when you're driving your car, you rotate your tires every so, so many miles. Yeah. These guys need to rotate their tires and some of them don't. They never stop and let their body naturally catch back up to the wear and tear that they place on it. So, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways we're in a, in a much better place, but I still think it's not perfect. And I still think there are things we have to figure out to put our athletes in the best position possible, make sure they're not buying into stuff that isn't necessarily helpful. That, you know, is not just a trend or a fad um, is going to be helpful um, and, and really do everything we can. And that's, you'll see, you're seeing teams buy in. I said it earlier, it used to be the, the head athletic trainer, maybe an assistant, maybe a PT. And now you look at the staffs around the leagues and it's multiple ATs on staff, a performance, a dietitian, a masseuse, a physical therapist, all these different specialties in that, that wheelhouse of sports medicine, which is great because you're allowing people to focus on their specific area while still allowing plenty of options to come in and treat the athlete. So we had a reporter that covers the New Orleans Pelicans, and I asked him about Zion Williamson, his injuries, and he basically said it was kind of like a state of flukes, like it wasn't anything like consistent, and now he suffered another injury. I'm just wondering, for such a hyped up prospect, what do you think his, if you were predicting future, are you concerned just in terms of the rest of the NBA future and what we're seeing, or is it just kind of Hey, just let it run its course, and we—it's unfair to label him as injury prone, for instance. It's probably a little bit of both, you know. Not to sound a little too wishy-washy there, but you know, I definitely think when a guy has multiple injuries on the same side over a prolonged period of time, there should be some concern. There needs to be a, 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 some evaluating. Um, there have been a couple of the injuries that were non-contact, and that's ones you hope you can reduce the risk of happening. You know, you can't stop somebody from coming down on someone's foot. You can't prevent, you know, someone punching you in the face and breaking a bone or, or, you know, you break your hand or, you know, things like that. Uh, injuries have been unfortunate, you know, and it's, you look at the, the overall cumulative mass of them all. And it's, it is concerning from the standpoint of they're, they're all seem to be kind of on the same side or, or interlinked and those kinds of things. Um, but 
there have been plenty of guys look at Joel Embiid that have had these labels, these injury prone labels, and just needed time to, you know, figure it out, continue developing, and then have a stretch of sustained luck, you know, in terms of, you know, just avoiding that injury bug. Uh, and, and then the other thing that is unfortunate with Zion is it's the same. What makes him a little bit of a high risk player is the same thing that makes him so valuable. You've never had a guy in his body move like he, he moves. That's so explosive. That is so fast yet. You know, he's not a power forward, but he's not a shooting guard. But, you know, if you ask him to potentially lose a lot of weight, does he lose that explosiveness and strength? And if he, and if he bulks up too much or tries to do different things in terms of that body mass, does that impact his explosiveness? And so again, it's finding that happy medium for him that where he can be productive and effective on the court, but also mitigate and lower his injury risk. And, you know, I have the utmost respect for the Pelicans medical staff. They are one of the highly rated groups. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, hamstring injuries like the one he's suffering are prone to aggravation They're, You know, it doesn't matter who you are. They're one of the high, higher risk injuries of secondary issues and things like that. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's tricky. It's, it's a loaded question. And it's one that I hope we find the answer to. And the answer is no, he's not injury prone. Cause he's so fun to watch, man. He is just, yeah, yes. he's such a beast and I would love to see him healthy for sure. No, me too. I want to ask you what goes into deciding whether a player should get back on the court from coming back from injury. I mean, is it, is it like a, a tug and pull in terms of that athlete wanting to get back onto the core? Are they working together to assess um, when they, when they're able to, you know, perform at a maximum efficiency while mitigating the risk of them getting hurt? Like how does that process work in terms of them working together? Cause I'm always wondering about that in terms of all the time we hear about, I want to get back on the court. I want to get back on the court, but it's just, you know, game after game after game, you know, they're sitting out and it's just like, what is the kind of that relationship dynamic like between the trainer and then the player and then also the coach as well. So, so clinically, a lot of times there's metrics that the players have to, hit before they're allowed to return to the court, whether that's, you know, strength needs to be equivalent of the opposite side or full range of motion with no limitation, no strength, you know, no functional limitation, you know, and those are measurable quanti- you know, quantifiable things that you can present to the player and say, these are the things we need you to get to before you can get back. Um, the unfortunate thing about that is sometimes even that is not perfect. For example, with a hamstring injury, uh, when the, the strain occurs, that's the tear in the muscle occurs. And then your scar tissue is laid down to fill in those gaps and your body doesn't do it in a nice organized fashion. It does it very haphazardly. And so the athlete might report feeling better once that scar tissue is laid down because functionally they probably feel pretty good, but that scar tissue is still really weak. And so they go back out there, it tears and you, you press reset on the entire healing process. So that's where, you need feedback from the athlete, but you also have to be very careful with what you're doing. And, you know, I think it's the very team dependent, but I think ideally you're having feedback from the players, uh, an understanding that the player and the coach and the athlete training staff and medical staff are all on the same page. This end goal is the same. Uh, and then are we hitting these markers and what does that look like? And then you have to do things like evaluate the schedule, you know, Hey, we're playing four games in five nights. Is it going to be best for us to throw you back in the mix on that? Are we, you know, and, and we don't have four and eight, four games in five nights anymore, but you know, it's a back-to-back on a low, long road trip or, you know, those kinds of things. And, and how can we do that? What's that plan going to look like? And then that plan, plan needs to be fluid because what happens if, 
you know, they report some lingering soreness or some discomfort, those kinds of things. So I think it's very team specific. Um, I think a lot of teams are very pr uh, protective of what they do. The one thing I will say is it drives me batty when players say, well, if it was the playoffs, I'd be out there because that <laughs> means your return to play protocol definitely factors in the weight of the game, which is, is part of it. I, I do think there's that part of it, right? Um, in, a, in an ideal world, that shouldn't be right. You should have these set standards and this is what it is. But, you know, if you're going to put an arbitrary number on it, like, okay, I'm 75%. It's a regular season game. I'm not going to play. But if I'm at 75% for a playoff game, maybe I do play those kinds of things. And it's so some of it's semantics, some of it's, you know, arbitrary numbers, but I think it's a good blend somewhere in between. Jeff, this has been a fantastic chat. Thank you for joining us. Please let our audience know where they can find you on social media, where they can find your podcast, and any other projects you're working on as well. Well, it's In Street Clothes on, on Twitter, and that's the podcast as well, In Street Clothes. Like, so when a player's injured, he's in Street Clothes. That's kind of uh, the best way to remember that. We'd love to, love to have the follow and listen uh, to the podcast. It's me and Dr. Brian Serter, who's on YouTube. Uh, give Brian a follow. He's a great follow for not just the NBA, but all sports. Um, especially if you'd like that format, he does that so much better than I do. He's a lot prettier than me too. So getting him on there and then, uh, you know, I do still write for Rotowire as well. So you can, you know, if you're a fantasy baseball or fantasy football player, uh, check out Rotowire cause you'll find me writing, uh, injury write-ups for, for that side as well. Awesome. Jeff, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot.